Father, the psalmist said that uh, your lamp, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And quite frankly, that's why we are here. We need light. We are all in different situations. We are all in different circumstances. For some of us, it's a, it's a relatively good season right now. It's a good chapter. For others, it's, a, it's not so good. In fact, it, we're having trouble seeing the good in it. Um, there are times, Lord, when we find ourselves uh, confused and somewhat mystified, and quite frankly, we find ourselves a little bit in the dark about what's going on. This is why we open your word. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Sometimes, Lord, it gets so dark, it, it seemingly we can't even see our feet. We've all been there. Some of us are there now. Um, thank you for your word. And thank you that your word tells us that you are such a great God and you are so magnificent. You are worthy to be praised. You know all things, you're everywhere. You see all things. You never get tired. You never get fatigued. And you're never in the dark. The psalmist said in Psalm 139 that darkness and light are alike to thee. We find ourselves in the dark, but we turn to you, the God who is light. And, Lord, when we're confused, you're not. I'm thinking of Psalm 142, 3 now. When my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. When we're in the dark, we're overwhelmed. When we can't figure out what's going on, we get overwhelmed. We start thinking ahead, trying to figure it all out, and we got to think a little bit about it. But uh, it's hard to draw the line, Lord, between legitimate thought and paralyzing thought. And we start looking ahead and we can't figure out the immediate future and then how's that going to play out the next 90 days and the next six months and the next nine months and what if this happens and what happens and all of a sudden we're just flat out overwhelmed. It happens to all of us. Um, I, I, I mean, it happened to me this afternoon a little bit. That's why I'm thinking about this. But when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path. You know exactly what's going on, and you know exactly what you're doing, even when it doesn't make sense to us. So tonight, as we open your word, shed the light into our minds and hearts. Um, give us understanding, and what we can't understand well, we'll simply trust you with our lives. Everybody is trusting somebody or something. Why would we not trust you who made us and made the whole world? 
So we say to you, you are our God. We trust in you. Our times are in your hand, even if in the present it's dark. You will make known to me the path of life. We thank you for that promise. Give us what we need tonight. And Lord, the fact is, a lot of times, we don't even know what we need, but you do. Help us to receive it with teachable hearts and spirits that are not defensive. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. We're working our way through this uh, study on finishing strong. And we're going to start tonight with uh, a gentleman that I first became familiar with when I was eight years old. When I was eight years old, I joined the Cub Scouts. And I got a, a subscription to a magazine called Boy's Life. And, I, I mean, I really liked the mag. It was, it was a good magazine, kind of fascinating. And I'd, I'd read that thing from cover to cover. And I remember getting that magazine. I read Boy's Life, and I read Sports Illustrated, and I read Sport. That's what I do. And, uh, you know, I just believe in a liberal arts education. You know what I mean? <laughs> but... Uh, in Boy's Life, I was reading an issue. I was eight or nine years old, and I read a story about a gentleman uh, that was on the Lewis and Clark expedition, and I had never heard of him before. His name was John Coulter. There were only two men who didn't return from the Lewis and Clark expedition. You know, that was, that was a pivotal expedition in our nation's history. Only two men didn't return from that expedition. One became sick and died. Uh, the other was John Coulter. And he didn't get sick, and he didn't die, but he was a young guy, and he was full of energy, and he had seen some country with Lewis and Clark that he had only gotten the taste of. And instead of coming back... <clears throat> to D.C. He said, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sticking here. And he started roaming the Rockies. And he started roaming where they had been and where they had gone, but where they just kind of looked up and saw the mountain range and had to keep going, he went back and he went into that mountain range. He was, he was pretty much, it's, it's pretty much determined that he was the first white man to ever see the geysers in Yellowstone. He went places where no one else, no other white guy had been. Uh, he was a mountain man. He was a trapper. He was living in constant danger because he was constantly going in places. I mean, he didn't know what was going to happen to him. There were grizzlies, all kinds of stuff, Indians, all kinds of stuff. On one occasion, he, was, he had been trapping with a mountain man named John Potts. And they had their furs, and they were in a canoe and making their way down a river. And the river was, uh, got real small, uh, real narrow at one point. And as it got to this narrow section, uh, arrows started flying from both sides. They quickly, I mean, they could not run them. They pulled up 
on the bank, and they were surrounded by Blackfeet Indians. And um, his, his friend panicked and jumped back in the canoe, and Coulter tried to stop him, and it was too late, and he was just pummeled with arrows and died a very swift death. So now it's John Coulter surrounded all these Blackfeet warriors. And they stripped him naked and tied, tied him up. And then there was some kind of powwow going on, and they were trying to figure out what to do with him. Do they, do they, uh, do they skin him alive? Do they, do they burn him? Do they stake him to an anthill? What, what, are, what are we going to do to this guy? And the chief came up to him and through sign language asked him if he was a fast runner. And Coulter replied, no, he was slow as a turtle. In actuality, he was fast. You know, one of the, the sports you'd have back then, they'd do foot racing. Well, Coulter was pretty fast. But he told his chief he was slow as a turtle. So the chief thought this would be fun. So they drew a starting line. They cut his ropes, whatever it was that was binding him, the, the rawhide, whatever, who cares? The handcuffs, who cares? I hadn't researched it that far until this moment. And what they did was they gave him a 300-yard head start. He's stark naked, nothing on his feet. And then each warrior could pick whatever weapon he wanted. And when he got 300 yards out, they all went after him. And Coulter started running. And he's running for his life, literally. Uh, not across uh, a groomed grass field, uh, but rocks, prickly pear. Didn't take long for his feet to start bleeding. He was running so hard and so fast that uh, he started having uh, blood coming out of his nostrils and his ears. Um, he's running for his life. At, at three miles, uh, he's, he's got warriors, a few that are within 200 yards. At four miles, he turns and there's two. And uh, he went a little further and turned and there was a warrior who had, of course, moccasins and is just coming after him with a lance. And it's just him. You can't see the other guys. They've all dropped off. And Coulter suddenly turned and stopped. Just turned and stopped. And so shocked that warrior that the lawyer, the warrior, I almost said lawyer, the warrior took the lance and just threw it at him. He was only 40 or 50 yards away and missed. But he put such momentum into the throw that he tripped and fell, Coulter picked up the lance, ran over and ran the guy through and killed him. And then he kept running. Now, he was running because off in the distance, five or six miles, he saw a line of trees, and he figured it was some kind of river, some kind of creek. And he still had a mile or two left, and he ran, and he, and he dove into that icy water. It was all snow melt. And there was some kind of a sand dune out there, and there was some congestion of different logs and driftwood and all kinds of stuff. And he burrowed his way under, and he found sort of a, 
haphazard just raft of wood that had gotten tied up with one another. And he got under there and found an air pocket. And, and he was freezing. But he stayed there throughout the day because it wasn't long before the rest of those warriors showed up and they're looking for him and they knew he was in there somewhere. And he was kind of covered by this. They couldn't see him. He could see them. They're walking over the top of it as he describes it. Uh, he was in there most of the day. And then they left and he started making his way down river. And hours later, he pulled into a sandy bank and he was suffering from hypothermia. Uh, he was in bad shape. Really, really bad shape. He knew there was a settlement um, not far away. Well, it was 150 miles away. Uh, he knew there was a settlement called Bighorn. And that was his goal, was to get there. But he didn't know, he didn't know if he'd last the night. Seven days later, he walked into Bighorn. Naked, cold, hungry, and John Coulter became a legend. That's what I read in Boy's Life. Um, we're talking about finishing strong in the Christian life. And our, kind of our key verse in this uh, semester of study has been Hebrews chapter 12. I'd like you to turn there with me. The reason I bring up John Coulter is I like that story because I, I, I think it kind of relates to the Christian life, to be honest with you. Uh, the Christian life is, is not an easy life. Now, it's the best life. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. But the Christian life is, is no ice cream social. It's, it's a long race. It's a hard race. It's a difficult race. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Um, we'll come back to that in a little bit. You know, the thing that amazed me about John Coulter in that story is that he finished strong despite the fact that he was stripped of everything. And as you study men in the Scripture and you study how it is that God works in the lives of men that follow him, you find that oftentimes there was a season where they were pretty much stripped of everything. Um... Now, this is what we don't want to hear. But it's what you see when you study men in Scripture. You see that they went through difficult times. They went through hard times. They went through bitter times. They went through times of loss, L-O-S-S, loss. Um, we, we talked last week about the fact that uh, 
you know, every man has fear. Every woman has fear. Everybody has fear. There are different kinds of fear. Uh, but for men, it's got to be hands down the greatest kind of fear that we have is the fear of failure. We just don't want to fail. But as we saw last week, God often uses failure to accomplish what he wants to do in our lives. It's the very last thing that we want to encounter. It's the very last thing that we want to deal with. When, when you experience some kind of failure, what happens is when, when you fail, you experience loss. John Coulter experienced loss. And I could never get it out of my head as a kid that that guy was stripped of everything, but somehow he was able to make 156, 150 miles to Bighorn. Uh, you, you know, over the years, when I was doing the book, Finishing Strong, I went back and I looked at Coulter, and I, I think you have to ask the question, you know, did he really, is it true that he really was stripped of everything? And uh, the answer is no. Um, he was stripped, but he was not stripped of everything. A couple of points. Coulter was stripped of his clothes, but not of his courage. He was stripped of his weapons, but not of his will. He was stripped of his provisions, but not of his purpose. See, how in the world did he withstand all that pain and agony and get 156 miles to Bighorn? Well, they didn't take everything. They didn't take his character, you see. He was stripped of his comforts, but not of his composure. That's why that's such an amazing story. They took everything that they could take externally. But see, they couldn't take his heart. They couldn't take his soul. That's why Jesus said, I think in Matthew 10, don't fear those who can kill the body. Don't fear them. You know, well, none of us want to die, and especially some kind of horrible death, and we see Christians being persecuted. Oh, man, I'm not sure I could go through that. Well, you could, because he would give you grace and he would give you strength. We have guys in here that you've been through things you never thought before you went through them that you could go through them and you got through them. Why? Uh, Deuteronomy says, as thy days, so shall thy strength be. Oh, man, man, I don't think I could ever go through chemotherapy. And then some of you guys got cancer, and you went through it, and you came out the other end. I don't think I could ever go through this, or a job loss, or this, or this. And it happened, and you got through it. Why? Because his grace is sufficient. His power is perfected in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. <clears throat> I got to tell you something. Um, when you talk about this subject of a man finishing strong, a man finishing Christ and getting in the race and following Christ, I, I think it's pretty safe to say you are going to encounter a season where seemingly you will be stripped of everything. We looked at Moses last week. He was stripped of everything. Tonight, I want us to consider Joseph. Joseph was stripped of everything. And there are some parallels between John Coulter and Joseph. Now, I'm not going to go into Joseph's story and read a lot of text. I'll read some, but not a lot, because it runs from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. Uh, it's a great read. It's, a, it's another remarkable story of God's providence and care and God's provision. Um, 
But think about this. We just talked about what culture was stripped of, but think about Joseph for a minute. And you remember Joseph, just to rehash, just very quickly. Um, you got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was Joseph's dad. Jacob was kind of a... Um, He's kind of a deceiver, kind of a con man. Ran a used car lot over there in Goshen somewhere. <laughs> you know. Had to be a little careful there. Uh, he sold a lot of cars out of New Orleans. <laughs> that, that was the kind of guy that he was. He, uh, he conned his brother. Uh, Conned his dad. In fact, at a certain point, his, his mom said, hey, you know what? Uh, you, you bet, why don't you go visit my relatives until this calms down? And so he did, and then he gets over there, and, uh, and he thought he was pretty slick, and then he met Laban. <laughs> and Laban was slick. Uh, well, there was this girl he fell in love with. Um, and he loved her. Um, she was beautiful, and, and he wanted to marry her. And Laban said, well, you can marry her, but you've got to work seven years for her. And he said, fine, and he worked. And then they had the wedding and the reception, and he must have got into the punch bowl a little. Anyway... He wakes up the next morning, and he doesn't have Rachel. He's got her sister, Leah. Now, Rachel was the homecoming queen, and Leah wasn't even in the homecoming court. Uh, her, uh, Rachel was beautiful, and Leah was, quite frankly, a little bit homely. And he was upset, and he, and he said to the father, he says, Hey, I work for Rachel, and you got Leah. And the Laban says, Well, around here, we marry the older girl first. Well, I want to marry Rachel. Well, you can marry her. Give me another seven years. So he did. Um, and then uh, they started having babies. Uh, Leah could conceive just like that, but Rachel had trouble conceiving. Um, and when each girl got married, he gave them a handmaiden. Uh, two handmaidens, one named Zilpow, the other one named Bilhow. Uh, and so then he would have children through the handmaidens. Everybody could have babies except Rachel. And, uh, well, finally, after years and years go by, Rachel has a baby, has a baby boy. Anybody know what they named him? Joseph. Later, she would have another boy named Benjamin. She would die at giving childbirth. But you had 12 brothers, but the favorite brother was Joseph because Joseph was the child of Rachel, who was really his beloved. And as a result, he favored Joseph. So Joseph got this fabulous coat that he'd gotten somewhere on a business trip and brought it back. And it was just quite, it was just fabulous. And none of the other boys got the coat, and so there was jealousy. And, okay, I'm kind of adding just, you know, it's called creative Bible study. <laughs> creative cooking. Putting a little sizzle in the fajita. Anyway, so here's what happens. Uh, 
at a certain point, he sends the, the, the brothers are all up north pastoring. And he sends Joseph up there, and they see him coming. And you know the story from here. And they see him coming, and they say, you know what? Let's kill him. And Reuben says, no, 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 don't do that. And then they find a pit, and they throw him in a pit. And Reuben's going to come back and rescue him. But while Reuben was away, they saw a slave caravan of Midianites, and they sold him. Um, so they sell their brother Joseph into slavery at the age of 17. Brutal, brutal thing to do. Cruel, evil. Uh, and you know, back then, if you were sold into Egyptian slavery at the age of 17 or 18, you'd be fortunate to be alive at the age of 25. I mean, the, work, uh, the Egyptians weren't real big on workman's comp. Uh, his life was over. His life was finished. Okay? So you... He's on the auction block, and by chance, he is purchased by an Egyptian high-ranking official named Potiphar. There is no chance. It was the hand of God. And he went to work for Potiphar at the lowest station, and the hand of God was on him. Flip over there. This all ties in. So he's purchased by Potiphar, and... Potiphar is right up there at the top. He's, he would be the equivalent of being in Pharaoh's cabinet. Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. Slaves don't become successful men. But he did. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. His master saw the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight, became his personal servant. He made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. This guy, Potiphar, he had an estate. He was a high-ranking official. This would have been uh, acreage, large house, different buildings, different dwellings for, for slaves and servants. And he saw that the hand of God was on Joseph, and God gave him favor, Joseph, with Potiphar. And, uh, and he just kept promoting pot and, uh, uh, Joseph. And suddenly, Joseph is running this whole operation. He's running the whole thing, everything. And it, it's interesting, verse 6, Potiphar left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with any, anything except the food which he ate. He had such trust in Joseph that he just basically retired, and, you know, what are we having for dinner? That was it. Uh, this was the hand of favor on Joseph's life to, to have had the rug pulled out from under him like that. It was a devastating loss to be sold into slavery, yet the favor of God. Um, now, isn't that a wonderful story, that how God came through for Joseph? Because Joseph had been stripped of everything. But now you get to verse uh, 6, everything... He owned, he left in Joseph's charge. With him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. You know, he worked out, he ate well, you know, he was, he was in shape. It came about after these events, what events? That he was promoted to run the whole thing. Now, let's stop and think about this. Do you think when Joseph went into Egypt to be a slave, he would ever imagine that he would... And by the way, when he was promoted, with promotion always comes perks, Right? Yeah. I mean, he started out probably cleaning latrines, and now he's running the whole estate, so he's probably got some kind of condo on the Nile or something. I don't know. He's got some perks. He's doing extremely well. 
He's probably amazed at the goodness of God. He's stunned by how God has given him favor. He has experienced success now after, after abysmal loss. Nobody wants loss. Now, when, you, when you've, you've been down and now you're back up, and he's back up, and he never thought it would happen because it seemed impossible. God has favored him. God has prospered him. God has been good to him. You don't ever want to lose it again, do you? Watch him lose it. Watch him lose it. Joseph was handsome form and appearance. Now it came about after these events of being promoted that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Now you got a problem. You got a big time problem. Um, watch this. And Joseph's a young guy. Okay? He's got a strong sexual drive as young men have. Master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? Interesting, he didn't say sin against Potiphar. He said sin against God, because you see... He lived under the sovereignty and under the awareness of his God. He was a God follower. Uh, he was a Christ follower. Knew a Messiah was going to come, but it wasn't in clear view because it was early on in the scriptures. Um, he said, no, I can't do it. And she said, okay, fine. I, I understand that. I respect that. And she never bothered him again. That's not what it says. Verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. She didn't go away. She absolutely would not go away. Temptation, 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 temptation. Um, Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. Uh, I mean, this was some kind of woman here. Uh, you know, it's interesting, her name is never given to us. Uh, uh, I like to call her Predator, <laughs> because that's what she was. A lot of these wealthy Egyptian women were just absolutely, completely without any morals. She just wants to sleep with this young guy. She caught him by the garment, lie with me. He left his garment in her hand and fled. Isn't it interesting that in the New Testament, a couple thousand years later, Paul would write, flee immorality? What did he do? He literally ran out of his garment. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, watch this. See, he has brought, meaning Potiphar, in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until her, his master came home. Then she spoke to him. But these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. 
came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment outside beside me and fled. Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. All right, I said there were some parallels between Joseph and uh, Coulter. Let me give you several. Number one, Joseph was stripped of his coat, but not of his character. Joseph was stripped of his family, but not of his future. We'll see that in a minute. Joseph was stripped of his position, but not of his purity. Joseph was stripped of his accomplishments, but not of his attitude. See, we look at Joseph and he finished strong. But the reason I want to look at Joseph tonight is that he was a man who, like many others in Scripture, found himself in a situation where not once, but twice, he was stripped of everything. You say, man, I, well, that's not real encouraging to me, because I've had it happen once. Well, I, I'm not saying, and, and this doesn't happen to everyone twice. But don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you as, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Is, that's First Peter uh, 4, 12. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that comes among you for your testing, as though some strange thing, kind of strange thing was happening to you. Now, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> Go back to Hebrews 12. You know, the Scripture, every word in Scripture matters. Every word. Nothing's wasted. Um, there's a little phrase in Hebrews 12, and we really haven't dealt with it so far in our study. We've just read it in its context along with everything else, but uh, it, we're going to look at it tonight. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Now watch this. Let us also, watch this, lay aside every encumbrance. Every encumbrance, okay? And the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Okay. Now, here's the deal. Different sports call for different kinds of preparation and different types of clothing. Um... In football, we use this phrase. If you play football, you suit up. You put, on, uh, you put on pounds when you play football. You put on pads. You put on a helmet. Uh, you're going to add weight. You suit up. You're going into battle. You're going to take some licks and hopefully give out a few licks. Um, was it Dan Pastorini? who was in that hospital with busted ribs, the Oilers quarterback, and this guy walked in with a baseball bat. You remember this story? Probably not. I'm making it up. Uh, no, I remember reading this. Pastorini had, had, was in bust, had busted ribs and walked in. This guy walked in, and he had a friend. 
And he said, I just need a minute of your time. And Pastorini's looking at him. And his friend goes like this. And this guy takes a bat and goes, what I, I mean, what would you think? And then he said, I've invented this bulletproof vest. Guy pulled off his shirt. And um, that's when quarterbacks started wearing those, those vests. You see? You suit up. You add weight. You do what you need to do to protect yourself. But you see, you don't do that for the Boston Marathon. Guys don't put on pads. They don't put on helmets. They don't put on... Okay, you get it. See, in, this is the interesting thing about different sports. Football, you suit up. If you're going to run a marathon, you strip down. Do you not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you want as little clothing and as... You, you measure it in ounces. You want light. You, 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 you want to just strip down. to. You don't want anything to encumber you. You don't want to be weighed down. So we're running a race, and one of the things that it says here, we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, so let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. This is a hard, difficult race. So it requires a stripping down. Now, let me, let me make this point here. When you look at this stripping down process in the Scripture, we're running the race, let us lay aside every encumbrance. I think you break it down even further. There, there are two parts to stripping down, to lay aside every encumbrance. Number one, there are the things that God strips from us. Number two, there are the things that we strip from ourselves. Let me show you um, the first, an example of the first one. There are the things that God strips from us. In the same passage in Hebrews 12, flip over with me. I was um, telling this to some guys at lunch today. Somewhere... My brother, my youngest brother, Jeff, somewhere around junior high school, middle, middle school, Jeff, uh, Jeff was a liar. He, he, that's the only thing I can tell you. He just lied. And my dad was not real big on lying. And my dad was picking up that he had a problem because he had this young boy, 12 years old or so, that was really becoming a serial liar. And my dad did discipline and appropriate discipline, and, you know, Jeff wasn't responding, and uh, it got a little tougher and a little tougher. And I remember, and I'm doing this from memory, but here's what happened. I remember when we sat down at dinner, and my brother Jeff asked my dad something, and my dad wouldn't acknowledge him or respond to him. It was though he wasn't in the room. And it was really kind of strange. Because everybody heard, but my dad wouldn't look at him and wouldn't respond to him and just kept going on. And then Jeff said something else, and my dad didn't talk to him. I want to say two days my dad didn't talk to him. Didn't acknowledge him, didn't respond to him. And he said, oh my gosh, how, how cruel. And how... No, my dad knew that he needed to take some extreme action because what he had done up to this point wasn't working. You see? Is it Proverbs nineteen eighteen that says, discipline your son while there is hope? My dad knew he was at a critical point with Jeff, and so my dad went to work. And 
my dad would, if he was going to do, it, you know what? It, it, it required some unusual methods because nothing else was working. So he didn't talk to Jeff. He didn't talk to him all night. And Jeff couldn't figure out. I mean, it, it, was, it was weird. And, he, and Dad didn't tell any of the rest of us what he was doing. I'm sure my mom knew, but my, my, I didn't know. My brother Mike didn't know. And we're kind of watching this. And then, you know, the next day after school, he, before school, breakfast, he didn't say anything to Jeff. He wouldn't talk to him. didn't even acknowledge him. After school, my dad gets home from work. Same thing. We're sitting there at dinner. And then finally, I mean, it was just bizarre. And Jeff finally, Dad, he says, Dad, you won't even talk. You won't even listen to me. And then Jeff started crying. He was brokenhearted. And then my dad acknowledged him. And then my dad started talking to him. Because, see, now he had a broken heart. Now he's repentant. Now there was a change. There was a change of heart, so my dad changed. You see? And my, uh, my dad said, I- I'm well aware, Jeff, that I haven't been acknowledging you, and I haven't been listening to you. And he's just told real kid. He's just great. He goes, well, Dad, you've never acted this way before. And I mean, I just don't get this. You've never treated me like this before. I mean, you, you, you just don't listen to me. And he said, he said, Jeff, you see, I can't believe anything that you say. So why should I listen? I remember that very well. See, Jeff, you're lying so much. I don't believe you. I just don't believe you. And you see, Jeff, this is not how you want to live your life because people that lie and lie all the time, what happens is they lose trust and no one wants to be around them and no one wants to interact. No one believes them. No one wants to... It made a point. It made a point. With that... Hebrews, and it's a good thing my dad's with the Lord, or I'm sure Child Protective Services would come after him 60 years later, but um, he was making a point, and there was a shift with Jeff. It impacted his little heart, you see? It really made a difference. I mean, I think my dad was very wise in how he handled that situation. Look at Hebrews 12, go down a few verses. Verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Now, remember, we're talking about the fact that there are things that God will strip from us. Or can we say this? There are things that God will take away from us. Now, watch this. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, we've got quite a few in this country. Watch this. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you've never been disciplined by God, you ought to ask the question, do I really have him as my father? Because he takes care and disciplines and loves his sons. He loves us so much, he won't let us get down that road too far. Okay? Nine. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. 
All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been, watch this, trained by it. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The purpose of discipline is redemptive. The purpose of, of discipline is to train. The purpose of discipline is to bring about a change of behavior and a change of mind and a change of action. It's a good thing. That's why David said, it was good for me that I was afflicted. There are, there are things that God does in our lives that he will strip away from us. Job said, after all that happened to Job in Job chapter 1, he gets all that information he gets, you know, this message, you know, you've lost this, you've lost this, you've lost this. It's like four FedEx letters come within 45 minutes. The last one, all your kids have died in a disaster. Job tore his clothes and he worshiped and he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 2 to his wife, he says, shall we accept prosperity from God and not adversity? You see, the Lord wants to conform me into the image of Christ. He wants to take me from immaturity to maturity. So there are seasons in my life where he will discipline me because I've got to respond. He wants to change my heart. And the only thing that's going to do that is discipline. So he will, and when you're disciplined, things are taken away. Okay? Secondly, though when when we talk about this stripping down process, secondly, there are things that we strip from ourselves. Um, go to Ephesians chapter 4, please. Now, this is if you're going to finish strong. Remember, we're in a race. It's a hard race. It's a difficult race. We've talked about the fact that not everyone who started strong finished strong. Well, we want to finish strong in the Christian life then you're, under, you're going to undergo, because the Father loves you, you're going to undergo His discipline. But as we grow and mature in Christ, not only will He take things away, and by the way, He took things away from Job, but when Job learned the lessons at the end of the book, and when Job forgave his friends, Job got everything back, watch this, twice. God is not against being a, a, a loving, kind, generous father to His kids. But as Warren Wearsby once said, God will not do something, God will not put something in your hand without first doing something in your heart. He wants our hearts, and He knows our hearts. He knows what the issues are of our hearts. So He will discipline us in order to deal with us and our, and our, and our hearts the Word of God is living, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and living and active and able to divide between joint and marrow, soul and spirit, this is Hebrews 4, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So my father knows my heart. And there are times, as my dad would discipline me, that my father will discipline me. Okay? So there will be times he'll take it away from me. But there are times when I need to take things away from myself. There are times I need to strip myself of certain things. This is Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 4. I notice that my hand-eye coordination is, is not as good as it used to be. I just have trouble getting to the right passage as quickly as some of you guys do. And I'm somewhat resentful over this, but I'm sure there's a lesson there. 
Look at Ephesians 4.20. Uh, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, watch this, you lay aside the old self. See, when you strip yourself of something, you lay it aside. If you're going to run a marathon, you strip yourself of your overcoat. What do you do? You take off your overcoat and you lay it aside because you don't want to run an overcoat. Does that... You, you, is this making sense? Is this sinking? You see what I'm saying? You take it off. You lay it aside. You strip yourself of it. Now watch this. This is all about things we strip. Not what God strips, what we strip. Look at this. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So we put the Word of God in our minds, okay, and you put on, watch that, you put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Watch this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, so what do you do? You strip yourself of lying. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet don't sin. Do not let the sin go down on your anger. and Don't give the devil an opportunity. Watch this. He who steals must steal no longer. Lay it aside. Strip it out of your life. So what do I do? Well, rather, you must labor. Instead of stealing, you work, performing with your own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has a need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. See, that's what you used to do. Strip that out. Just strip it out. The tongue is, uh, is, 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 a, is a brutal weapon. Be careful what you say. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. These are things that we are to strip. You see? And it's a process, and we don't get it right all the time, but we say, Lord, I need you to help me. Help me with my anger. Help me with my temper. Help me with my speech. Now, go back to Joseph, if you would. Let's go back to that passage, because I want to show you something he stripped out of his life. Let's go back to Joseph in uh, Predator, back there in Genesis. I, I want you to note something here. Um, when you strip something away, you're putting it away. And let me make an observation. Joseph put away the thought of trading his purity for his position. Let me say that again. Joseph put away the thought of trading his purity for his position. Now, we know what the text says. She wouldn't go away. He refused. He had his principles. And she just kept after him and kept, at, kept nagging him, tempting him. I mean, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't end. Now, but, but, but is it not possible that, that the more he was around her, the more he knew her and knew her heart and her methods and what she, how she would operate with other people. Joseph was a smart guy, and he, he was, I mean, he was no dummy. Do you think, and, and she might have even said it to him. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But before she actually got angry and lied and said, he raped me, do you think it's possible that she ever 
actually made the threat that if you don't do this, that I will say this and you will lose your position? Do you think that's possible? Do you think it's probable? Even I do, and even if she didn't, knowing her and watching her, he could put two and two together and knew that that was in the realm of her abilities and capabilities, and she wouldn't think twice about it. So you see, I think he was being tested here. Will you, and remember, he had lost everything, been stripped of everything. Now he's got a position. Now he's got status. Now he's got ease. Now he's got affluence. But see, he had to put away the thought of trading his purity for his position. That's a character issue. Is it not? Yeah, it is. It's a character issue. Years ago, I had a conversation with a guy. Um, he was in the corporate world. Um, loved his wife, kids, you know, just solid guy. Involved in his church and men's ministry. Um, he, uh, anyway, he was telling me that a gal from his church, actually a gal that knew his wife and same church, same small group, this gal came to work. And uh, he found himself really struggling with just being attracted to her. Uh, nothing ever happened, nothing was ever said, nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. He just had an attraction to her. And it was very strong. And he found himself always thinking about her. And it was getting to be a problem. And what he did was, he went home one night and he sat down with his wife and he said, sweetheart, I got to tell you something. And he told her about it. And she knew the gal. And he said, listen, nothing has occurred. Nothing. And she said, no, I understand nothing. He said, I'm just telling you, I love, and I love you, I love you to death. But, and he told her about it. And she said, I thank you for telling me. And I'll pray for you, and you know, and da, da. you know what eventually happened? He came back to his wife, and he said, you know what? I'm going to put out my resume, and I'm going to look for something else. Because uh, I'm just having such a struggle here. The other gal never knew about it, and he put out his resume, and he actually switched jobs to avoid temptation. You say, that's pretty excessive. Remember Jesus said, if your eye offends you, put on sunglasses? <laughs> Jesus said, if your eye offends you, what do you do? Pluck it out. He's using hyperbole, and the context is sexual temptation. That guy was just sharing his heart with me. I thought that was really something. And he made a lateral move. Didn't take a promotion, didn't take a deal, just a lateral move, and didn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. That's okay. It made sense to him. And what do you think his wife thought about him? Well, you know what she thought. She loved him even more. Why? Because he wanted to be a one-woman man. He wanted to be absolutely, totally committed to her, no matter what. You see? 
He put it away. He ran from it. Wasn't going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, it's hard to lose things. It's hard to suffer loss. It's hard to have something stripped away. John J. Murray has written this. He said, we will see a renowned athlete winning a gold medal. He may make it look easy on that day, but victory could not have been achieved without painstaking training and meeting increasingly tough opposition. The process by which God builds character is outlined in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Paul says that we glory in tribulation. The Greek word trans translated tribulation comes from the verb to press. The word is used to describe the crushing of the grapes and olives. The figure suggests the heavy pressures of outward trouble or inward anguish. Tribulation produces patient endurance, the ability to stay with it and not fall apart. Go to Romans 5 real quick. I want to show you this. This is, this is really, uh, here's a nugget for you. In terms of finishing strong, how do I finish strong when, th when, I, when I suffer loss? How do I finish strong when things are taken away? That's, that's not easy. No man wants to be, fail. No one wants to suffer loss, especially when your friends aren't suffering loss in a particular area that you're experiencing. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an, our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult, or we uh, rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, or we glory in our tribulations. Now, how would you glory in your tribulations? Watch this. Knowing. This is what you do with your mind. It's not what you do in the experience. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. What does it take to finish strong? Perseverance. So what, what's going to enable me to finish strong? Tribulation. But I have to know that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character. Oh, proven character. Not apparent character, not spin doctor character, not character for the campaign swing, but proven character. Real character, genuine, 24-carat gold character. Comes through what? Tribulation, perseverance, produces proven character, and proven character, hope, Watch this, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There's the process. You're not going to finish strong without some kind of suffering, without some kind of loss, but you've got to step back and view it in a certain way. Now go to Psalm 105. This stuff all ties together. It's all got the same author. It's fascinating. Psalm 105 is going to give us a brief mention of Joseph. And watch this. It gives us an angle we don't get anywhere else. Psalm 105, 17. He sent to man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They affected his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons until that, the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord. He, he was put, hey, listen, what happened? He wouldn't sleep with her. Potiphar throws him in jail. They put him in irons. 
Once again, he lost everything. Verse 19, until the time that his word came to pass, watch this, the word of the Lord tested him. Tested him. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, you know, I love teaching the scriptures. But sometimes I forget what I teach. I was talking to a friend this afternoon, and I made the statement that I was trying to figure out why I was dealing with something. It was really something. It, was, it, it actually was quite stupid. Because I don't need to know why. What I do know is that it's just another test. And see, really, the question is not, why am I going through it? The question is, how? Because in James, when it says, count it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then it goes on and says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who, ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. God will probably not tell you why. But if you ask for wisdom, he'll tell you how to navigate it. Why will come later. Not on this, if not on this earth, it'll come in heaven. Oftentimes, you live long enough, you get the why. Oh, now I see why I went through that. But see, we know from Scripture what's happening. I'm being tested. Once again, I'm back being tested. I don't want to be tested. Well, if I'm going to be finished strong, if I'm going to finish strong, I'm going to go through this testing process, which is a difficult process, but God has a reason and God has a purpose for it in my life. You know, it's interesting that Psalm 105 passage, when it says he himself was laid in irons, there's a variant reading there. It can read, the iron entered into his soul, and his soul entered into iron. In other words, it, it just wasn't his flesh that felt the iron. It wasn't the, just the iron on his wrist and on his feet. The iron went down deep into his soul. And when you are being tested that deeply and there's that much loss and you're back in a difficult time, I mean, it's a heartbreak and it's a heartache and your heart is pained. Is it not? But what is he doing? What is he up to? See, he, and this is when, once again, we think we're finished. We're not finished. This is preparation. But there is a test here. I think there is a test, and let me just back up as we sum this up. Um, I think there was something else that Joseph had to put away when he was in that prison. I think Joseph had to put away the thought of turning his betrayal into bitterness. At some point in your life, you're going to be betrayed by someone you trusted. If it happened to Jesus, it's probably going to happen to you. It can be a wife. It can be your closest friend. It can be a business. It, it can be anybody. But um, there's nothing that goes deeper than betrayal. And even years later, when 
the name of that person or the thought of that person comes up that betrayed you and hurt you and took advantage of you, there is immediate anger, isn't there? I, I have, I'll just be honest with you, I have two or three individuals that when their names come up, I have an immediate um, anger. And they're Christians. And I have to immediately, immediately in my heart, ask God to bless them, bless their lives, bless their families, pour favor upon them. Why? <laughs> because I can't let bitterness settle in my heart. Go back to Ephesians 4. We're almost done. And, and there's a link here. Hey, as, as, you're turning, as you're turning to Ephesians 4, you're probably there. As I'm turning to Ephesians 4, um, let me ask you a question. Do you think... Do you think early on in his life when he was cleaning toilets in Potiphar's house that Joseph ever thought about his brothers and what they had done to him? Sure he did. Okay. And then after he was promoted and all that and he's thrown in jail. And listen, you're thrown into Egyptian jail. There's no ACLU and you don't, you know, you don't get a phone call. You're just in there. And he's, he's in there. Do you think whenever he thought of that woman, what do you think he thought about? Do you think, you think that he had the potential to be bitter? There was anger? Sure there was. Watch, go back, go back to Ephesians 4. You said we were there earlier. Yeah, we were. But watch this in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Another thing I've got to strip out of my life is when someone has hurt me, when someone has betrayed me, when someone has wounded me and taken advantage of me and stabbed me in the back and in the front in every which way, what do I have to do? I have to put away, what? Bitterness, because bitterness will kill me. You see? And Joseph had to deal with that in that prison. And he couldn't finish strong with bitterness in his heart because if he didn't deal with it, it would grow. When you get bitter, what's the natural thing you want to do? You want to take revenge. It's interesting to me that in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, he talks to wives. Then in verse 7, he talks to husbands. And then he says, to sum up what I've just said to wives and husbands, he says in verse 8, to sum up, <coughs> excuse me, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. He goes on and says, for if you desire life and you want to love and see good days, watch this, you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit, you must turn away from evil and do good. You must seek peace and pursue it. In other words, you don't get bitter because when you get bitter, you want to return insult for insult, injury for injury. You, you can't do it. You leave it to the Lord. Joseph had to deal with this in prison. And I'm going to tell you something. If we don't deal with this, we will not finish strong. 
So when that person's name comes up, say, Steve, you, you. <laughs> I remember a guy telling me, saying, you know, that can be very hard to do. Tell me when that isn't hard to do. That's always hard to do. I don't even know how to begin. You just say, Jesus, help me and forgive, and, and, and forgive them and bless them. Bless them. I leave it with you. Do your work in their life. Bless them, Lord, beyond measure. That's how you fight bitterness. It's a hard thing to do. But you see, it protects your soul and it protects your heart. Don't return evil for insult, evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Hmm. Oh, I can't forgive them. You don't know what they did. Well, Jesus forgave you. And he forgave me. We've got no grounds. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for your truth. These are hard things. These are difficult things. But once again, Lord, when we're in those difficult times as Joseph was, you were doing a work in his heart. He wasn't always going to be in that prison. He was there for a season. And after you'd done the work and after you had tested him, then out of nowhere, in the most amazing of circumstances, you promoted him in a way that he could not imagine. So, Father, the guys that are here in deep times of testing, encourage them. Encourage them. We have nowhere else to go except to you. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with the days of testing. We would simply ask that you would give us teachable hearts. And we would pray along with what Peter said. Let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Lord, we trust you. Do the work that needs to be done. And then at the right time, bring us out. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the right time, he will exalt you. We wait on your time. In the interim, make us teachable and obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.